James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives freely to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, the microphone is still available. Who's next? Anyone? Anyone uh, listening to you share that reminded me of a, of a season in our life in ministry when I was down in Corpus Christi, a student pastor of First Baptist Church of Corpus Christi. And um, I was going into a season of teaching with our students on Wednesday nights. And I was telling them how we were going to start walking through the book of James. And in that discussion with them, I wanted to encourage them to try to memorize James chapter 1. And they all just had a blank stare and they had like no interest or excitement or anything. And I was like, okay, how about this? The first person that memorizes James chapter 1, I'll give you a hundred dollars. And then anybody else that'll memorize it by a deadline, I'll give you fifty dollars. And then they, they got a little bit more interested. <laughs> so I go home that night and I'm uh, we're talking with the family. Our kids are much younger at that point. Our oldest, Logan, 
uh, he was only in the fifth grade. Uh, and so I told him what I had done and the challenge that I gave them. And Logan looks at me and he's like, is that for anybody? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Sure, go right ahead, son. Knock yourself out. I'm thinking, it's fifth grade. What's going to happen? Uh, for the next two hours, Logan disappears in the house. Can't find him anywhere. It's time for bed. And then finally track him down. And he had locked himself up in the laundry room. And so I'm like, Logan, it's time for bed. He goes, well, can I say something before I go to bed? I was like, what do you want to say? He looks at me. He's like, James, a bondservant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And I was like, so he, he rattled it all off. And he's got a big old smile on his face. And he's like, did I get the money? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no. I mean, like, I don't even know if you memorized it to retain it yet. Like, like, why don't you just go to sleep and let's see what happens tomorrow. Like, you're looking, like, it's $100. I'm trying to figure out. Like, it went like that. So I, like, send him off to bed. I'm thinking we'll see what happens the next day. The next morning arrives. Before I'm even awake, I just sense this presence. Now open my eyes, and my little boy's face is just right there. He's like, Dad, James, the bondservant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he nails it. So yes, he got the $100. Sorry, no $100 for you. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 1. We are going on a journey starting today. And hopefully... My, my, my goal is to gloriously ruin the book of James in our lives. I want us to look at this with a fresh eyes, to, to really begin to understand what James is trying to communicate to them and ultimately to us. And so we'll go on a journey however long it takes us, and uh, based upon the studying this week, it might take us a little bit longer than I had anticipated, uh, my original goal this morning was to unpack uh, verses 2 through 12 today, uh, and so that has now been modified. We'll look at verses 2 through 4 this morning. For those of you that are interested or for those of you that have a short attention span, let me start off by giving you the sermon in a sentence today. And Here's the sentence for you. Our attitude determines our action. Our attitude determines our action. James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, so first of all, I want you to notice that, that God tells us to expect trials in our lives. Verse 2 does not say if you happen to come across various trials. No, it says when you meet trials of various kinds. So we, we understand right from the beginning that trials are inevitable in our lives. No one is immune from facing a trial in life. So either you have recently come out of a trial, you are currently in the midst of a trial, or you're about to face a trial. And so for, for the Christ follower, 
who expects for their life to be easy, problem-free, and painless as a result of their following Jesus Christ, well, that person is in for a real surprise because that's not how it works. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse number 33, He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, so James is saying from the very beginning, because we are God's scattered people, not His sheltered people, that, then we can expect to face trials in life. Now sometimes the trials that we face are a result of the fact that we're just human. So, so we have trials like sickness, accidents, disappointments, trials like tragedies, other times, we have trials as a result of being a Christ follower. After all, Satan fights against us. His desire ultimately is to either destroy us or to discredit us. On top of that, we live in a world that radically opposes us. And so with that in mind, of course, trials and tribulations are going to be a part of life. Now notice how verse 2 says, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word there, various or various kinds, in the Greek, it literally translates as rainbowed or multicolored. So what it's telling us is that the trials that we face in this life are going to vary. They're, they're going to look differently. They're going to vary in their form they will vary in their intensity. They will vary in their duration. Sometimes the trial is a, is a minor inconvenience. Sometimes the trial is a major crisis. Now stay with me. That word various there, it's the same word that's used to describe God's grace in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 10. There it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, God's multicolored grace. So for me, the cool thing about this connection is that for every multicolored trial that we face, there is an equal and matching multicolored measure of God's grace in order to see us through that trial. And so the key for me, back in James chapter 1, verse number 2, the key for me is found in the word count. It tells us to, to count, and that word count is a financial term. It means to consider or to evaluate. In fact, Paul uses this word many times in his letter to the church in Philippi. Look on the screens. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse number 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I have, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See, he's considering, he's evaluating it all. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and upon my, my, my evaluation I now consider them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So, so now think about it. Our sermon in the sentence was our attitude determines our action. Now let me help you to understand the things that shape our attitudes. First of all, there's the fact that our values help to shape our attitude. And so when Paul became a, a believer, he took an evaluation of his life. And the things that once were of value to him were no longer valuable to him. And the things that he once considered extremely important in his life, well now as a believer in Christ, he now considers those things that were of worth, he now considers them just simple garbage in life, in light of his desire to pursue Jesus. This helps to explain how we can have joy in the midst of a trial. Because if we value comfort rather than character, then when the trials come in our lives, we'll get upset and frustrated. If we value the material or the physical things of this world instead of the spiritual matters of this life, then when we face a trial, it will be very difficult for us to consider that joy. If we're living only for the here and now, not for eternity, then when we face those trials, most likely those trials are going to make us bitter and not better. When we face trials and tribulations in life, then we need to make sure that we adapt the appropriate attitude. Remember, our, our attitude determines our action. So, so what do we do when we face trials? How is it possible for us to rejoice in the midst of the storm? Well, here's where truth number two comes in. Truth number one was that uh, our values help to shape our attitudes. Truth number two is that our attitude is determined by our understanding. So follow on. This is the picture I'm trying to get to you. Uh, how our, our attitude determines our action. So our attitude leads to how we will respond. So what are the components that make up our attitude? Well, there are the values that we have and the understanding that we have. Both of those determine what type of attitude that we have. So we realize, it's obvious, that trials are not joyful in and among themselves, but they can be joyful when we realize that we have those trials have been given to us under the authority of the sovereign hand of God in order to accomplish His purpose in and through our lives. So then we have to consider, why do we have trials? What's the purpose of the hardship and the heartaches that we have to go through in this life? And if you're thinking that question, well, congratulations, that's a great question. And, and it's a question that his text actually gives us the answer to. Look, look, look back at verse number 3. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now look at the, how the verse starts off. The verse starts off with the phrase, For you know. What do you know? Well, for you know that you're going to face trials. Now that you know that you're going to face trials of various forms, now that you know that you're going to face trials of, of various degrees of intensity, 
various lengths of, of duration. Now that you know the fact that you're going to face trials, you can now be encouraged to be prepared to handle those trials. So how can we be, be prepared to handle the trials that we know we're now going to face? Well, we can be prepared by having a proper understanding of the purpose behind the trials. The text says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, in, in James chapter 1, we're going to look at two things uh, of great significance. We're going to look at the purpose and the role of trials, and then we're going to look at temptations. Trials and temptations are not the same thing. Trials are presented by God. Temptations are presented from Satan. Trials seek to bring out the best in us. Temptations seek to bring out the worst in us. Trials will, will try to build us up. Temptations will try to tear us down. Trials occur in our life in order to develop steadfastness is the word. That word steadfastness means to per persevere or to endure. So we have trials in our life in order to bring or to build up endurance in our life. So consider it pure joy when you face these trials because those trials help us to make us steadfast. They help to develop our endurance for the sake of Jesus Christ. Trials are presented in our lives in order to make us stronger, not to make us weaker. Trials are to work for us, not to work against us. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now look at verse number 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials help to develop endurance with the goal of making us perfect. That word perfect means making us fully mature. So the purpose of trials is to develop our maturity. It's to make us perfect, mature, complete, so that we lack absolutely nothing. One of God's goals for our life is maturation in Him. Growing in Christ's likeness. The reality is that one day we will stand before a holy and righteous God. But until that day, God is working extremely hard to prepare us for that meeting. And that's a beautiful reality. And if we're honest, then we'd most likely have to admit that we don't tend to think in, in this way. For some of us, we think that the goal in life is simply to be successful. We think the goal in life is to, to have a nice job, to, to drive a nice car, to have a certain kind of family, to achieve a certain kind of social standing, then a trial occurs in our life. And when that trial begins to affect our job, our home, our family, our income, some plan that we've made for ourselves, well then those trials will tend to devastate us rather than to develop us. And so if, if our goal in this life is to know God, and then to be conformed into the image and likeness of His Son, then we can have joy in the midst of the trial 
because we now know that we are moving toward that goal. And we're growing in our endurance. We're growing in our maturity. So it is through trials that we can expect growth and godliness, the likes of which we could never experience any other way. And so this truth and reality, let's just be honest, this, this fact isn't encouraging or comforting if our goal is to have a nice and easy life now. If our desire is simply for the pursuit of the American dream, if that's your goal, if that's what you're living for and striving for, then when the trials come, they'll not be a source of joy in your life. In fact, they're more than likely to bring about great unhappiness in life. But when you look beyond the things of this world and you fix your eyes upon the author and the perfecter of your faith, then when those trials come, they can be your joy. Because it is through those trials that we begin to know more about Jesus. We know him better. It's through those trials that we learn to trust him, to follow him, to lean into him, to fully rely upon him. Now go back to verse number four. It says, and to let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what I want you to understand. God cannot develop our character without our cooperation. God cannot develop our character without our cooperation. If we resist Him, then it's likely that He very well may chasten us to submission. But may you know that God is never satisfied with a work that is only halfway completed. As you can see in this verse, His end goal is that we would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So God's goal for us is Christ-like maturity. He wants to develop us from being babes in Christ to fully mature believers in Christ. And some of us have been babes in Christ for a long time. Still returning to and looking for the, the, the milk instead of training and disciplining yourself to transition from milk to substance and meat. I hope that makes sense to you. Some of us are stuck in, in spiritual immaturity and I think that a key reason why we might be stuck in that spiritual immaturity is because we're so resistant to when trials occur in our lives. In fact, turn with me if you will to Ephesians chapter 2. So God's goal is for Christ-like maturity in and through our lives. He wants to develop us. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, here in, in this section that I'm about to read to you, Paul gives three works that are involved in the Christian life. I'll give those to you real quickly this morning. Three works that are involved in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. It says, For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me break down the three works that are involved in the Christian life. Work number one is the work that God does for us. The work that that God does for us. And that work is what we call salvation. So we have the work that God does for us, which is salvation. That's why verse number 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not something that you can manufacture or work up on your own. No, it is a gift of God. So Jesus completed that work on the cross. And so if we trust in him, put our faith in him, then he'll save us from the penalty of sin. So the first element is the work that God does for us, salvation. The second work is the work that God does in us. And that work is called sanctification. That's why it says in verse number 10 that we are his workmanship. God is working and building out our character so that we can become more and more like Jesus. So we have the work that God does for us, salvation. And then we have the work that God does in us, sanctification. And then the third work is the work that God does through us. And that work is what we call service. Verse 10 continues. That we're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But before God can effectively work through us, He has to work in us. But God won't work in us without our consent. We've got to surrender our wills unto Him. If we're not going to surrender our wills unto God, then when we face trials in our lives, we'll have the tendency to respond to those, tri- those trials like immature children, babies, rather than mature believers. So God has a twofold purpose for our lives. And this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. For all of you that believe in Jesus Christ, fully relying on Him as the author and the perfecter of your faith, then God's twofold purpose in our life is that we would become more and more like Him and that we would do good works for His glory. And God wants to do great works through us. And He's actually prepared those works a long time ago that we would walk in faithfulness to complete those works. But he's got to do the work that's necessary in our lives so that we can grow and to develop with Christ-like maturity. And that, that is the purpose of trials. Trials are brought into our life for the development of our character. Trials are, are, are not something that's awful. It's not something that we should be afraid of. I'm not saying that when bad things happen or the trials come that we wear these eternal plastic fake smiles and say, oh, this is so joyful. I love it. I'm not talking about faking it through the process. 
But understand that in that hardship is the opportunity for us to turn to Jesus Christ, to continue to trust Him, to lean in Him, so that His multicolored grace can carry us through that multicolored trial that we're going to endure. All for His purpose, all for His glory. So the sermon and the sentence. Our attitude determines our action. So how do we have a better attitude? Well, we've got to understand that our attitudes are shaped by our values, and quite frankly, our values are shaped by our understanding. So it all goes down to having a proper understanding of God's plan and purpose in our lives and God's plan and purpose for the trials that He sovereignly allows in our lives. And that is to develop us, to strengthen us. So if you're in a trial today, Know that we as a church want to pray with you. We want to walk alongside you. We want to help encourage you in that trial. If you've just recently come out of a trial, oh, we'd love to celebrate with you, to give praise unto God for the deliverance that he's brought you through. And know this, that if you haven't come out of one and you're not in one, I'm not trying to be mean or harsh, but just know that one's coming. One's coming. And when that trial comes, adapt the appropriate attitude. And instead of asking God, why? Why me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Maybe you can begin to reshape your prayers and simply ask, what? What, Father? What is it that needs to be developed in my life? What is it that you're trying to teach me through this experience? Help me to see it. Help me to know it. Help me to follow you in the midst of it all. And that, my friends, is why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen? So whatever trials come your way, Trust in Him and receive the growth and development that He's desiring to work in and through your life so that He can continue to work through your lives to bring glory unto Him. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. This time of invitation today is going to be done somewhat differently than what we normally do because this morning we're also going to offer you the opportunity to to partake in the Lord's Supper. So at this point, I would invite our deacons and your spouses to go ahead and come on and make your way up here and go ahead as you guys get started and get prepared. I want to kind of explain to you what we're going to do this morning. This morning, we're going to have the deacon and their spouse. They're going to be lined up across the front of the church. And we're going to invite you, if you feel prepared, And if you feel like you can partake of this in a manner that's worthy unto God, we're going to invite you to come and to receive your elements from one of our deacons and their spouses. And that's all. We're not going to take this all together. It is a come and take it if you feel prepared and you'd like to take it. This, this, This opportunity is available to any Christ follower that is in this place that's walking in a right relationship with God. It's not about being a member of the church or not. It's about being a member of the family of God. And so if that is you 
And if you would like to participate in this, then we're going to invite you to come to receive your elements and then to take them. You can take them here. You can take it back to your seats. You can take them together. Your whole family can come and step off to the side. However it is that you want to do it, we'll invite you to come. Now also in the front, I'm going to be down here. Daryl and Lisa are over there. Joel and Catherine, they're over there. Staff is here. We're here to pray with you, to encourage you in any way. So we, we, we give this time as a time of prayer or a time of participation with the Lord's Supper. With that being said, let me tell you why we do this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says in verse number 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I'm ready to proclaim the Lord's death with you today. Let's pray, and then you come and you do what you feel is appropriate during this time of invitation. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. And Father, today, we thank you for the trials that you've brought into our lives. Help us not to be frustrated, bitter individuals when the hardships come, but help us to trust in you that we, become, that we can become better for your glory and for your honor. So God, during this time of invitation, as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper or we come to seek prayer and guidance and encouragement, God, I pray that you are pleased by what you see in each and every one of us. May this time not be a time of going through the motions, but may it be a true time of celebrating who you are, what you've done, and what you promise will come. So God, we thank you. We trust in you. We love you. We commit this time for your, for your honor and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.